Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. You are going to hear a lot today. In fact, if you've been listening uh, to the live radio broadcast, you've been hearing a lot already about impeachment, um, whether or not the president of the United States should be, will be removed from office. Uh, let me do it. Let me encourage you to consider that there are uh, arguments for and against, and it can be argued either way utilizing biblical examples. So this is one of those very challenging days for Christians, one of those very challenging uh, points of conversation where deep discernment is needed. I read uh, an email this morning from Jen, uh, Jim Dennison at the Dennison Forum that I thought was really, really good on this, um, on this topic. He offers um, two biblical approaches uh, arguing for, that you, that you might hear Christians use, to argue for impeachment, and then he offers some arguments against it. And so um, I, I think that's a, a helpful way for us to um, approach the conversation uh, because it's really hard to know what God's will is in all of this. So the Bible teaches, this is uh, Jim Dennison, presidents and all people are accountable before God and others. The Bible teaches each of us will give an account of himself to God. Uh, Jesus was clear that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. When people sin against us, we are to hold them accountable. It's Matthew 18. Leaders are very clearly accountable for their actions. First uh, Timothy 4, Hebrews 13, Luke 16, James 3. And then he talks about accountability being vital to society. Uh, and so, um, and there he, uh, he talks a little bit about what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 um, and the, the role of accountability in society itself. I think that um, I think it's rightly observed that uh, governing authorities, including those in elected positions of leadership, they don't have a choice as to whether or not uh, they're going to be held accountable. They will be held accountable. And so the question is, as um, as a people in a civil society, how do we hold people accountable and for what do we hold them accountable? And that's where we get into a conversation about the United States of America being a nation of law. Um, and although we are one nation under God, an important part of the conversation, uh, we are also a nation of laws. And when there is lawlessness, accountability is, um, you know, is absolutely the, the right and righteous response. So what might be biblical arguments against uh, impeachment or against removal? Um, you could um, perhaps um, uh, argue that, you know, our role here is to work for peace. Jesus certainly taught, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Paul taught, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Um, and millions, tens of millions, some 74 million Americans voted for uh, President Trump. It's the largest number of an incumbent in history 
It's the largest number of people that have ever voted for the person who ultimately lost the election. So um, some people uh, are feeling very agitated. Uh, Would that only be exacerbated if the president were to be removed from office and therefore should we work for peace and peacemaking? Um, That's a good good question. Is there uh, the, the right thing to do? Um, according to the law, may may be one thing, and wisdom may point us in a different direction. That's a challenge. That's a challenge for us as Christians. Uh, Jim Dennison also offers this. Uh, we should keep the greater good in mind. This would be the other argument against impeachment and removal. He says, Jesus asked, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Uh, he says, it could be argued that removing President Trump from office a few days before his term ends will um, will distract Congress and the country from issues uh, such as the pandemic and the economy, um, international concerns, China, Russia, all the grave challenges that we face together as a people. Um, he's right. So what's the redemptive path forward? That's ultimately the question uh, and the conversation that you and I as Christians need to be provoking. Um, let us strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. So how can... Um, how can I participate in that redemptive path forward? Well, first, I can pray. Second, I can speak and act redemptively. And third, I can trust the king. I have a king. His name is Jesus. I trust him. Um, and he is not dethroned by any of this. Uh, the Gospel Coalition has some great resources posted today as well. Just encourage you to make use of that, which, um, you know, which really competent Christians are posting on the subject matter of the day and be encouraged. All right, Bill English, Waiting in the Wings from BibleandBusiness.com. We're going to talk about businesses uh, taking democracy for granted and, frankly, why you can't do that. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me again today, Bill English from BibleAndBusiness.com. Bill, welcome back. Hey, good to be with you, Carmen. How hey, are you doing it, today? I, I, I'm I blessed, man. I am I'm too. Ble- yeah. I'm blessed. <laughs> I'm so blessed. Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, the environment in which um, businesses thrive and maybe the false expectation that, um, uh, you know, Either democracy is not necessary for business to thrive, or I could just take democracy for granted. I think either of those directions is sort of bad to go. Talk, talk with us about this piece that you sent me from the Harvard Business Review. Business can't take democracy for granted. Yeah, we, yeah, we really can't. Uh, if if you take a long step back, and this is not part of the article, but if you look at all of the attempts of England and Spain to settle the New World back in the 14 and the 1500s, there's only one. Uh, settlement that actually uh, did well, and that was the one that eventually uh, turned into the United States of America. And you ask your, yeah, you ask yourself the question why. And one of the one of the uh, uh, Niles Ferguson in one of his books says um, that the wealth that was starting to be formed in America in the early days did not go back to the crown. It stayed here in America, and because they developed or we developed a what is called today a free enterprise or capitalistic system, that wealth could be renewed and grown and made better. 
So, uh, so democracy, I think of us as a republic rather than a democracy, but uh, I'll use the word democracy this morning. A democracy is necessary for uh, business to thrive. Uh, it it does need good regulation. I'm not a laissez-faire guy, if, for those of you who might know what that term is. But I certainly think that uh, freedom, freedom of association, freedom of contracting, freedom to choose who your vendors are, who your customers are going to be. And, and I, I like Adam Smith's invisible hand here. All of that is supported by a democracy, a, a free society. Those things are not supported by a highly socialistic or communistic society. So uh, the fact that um, that uh, we are going through a sea change in our in our um, culture right now, uh, that none of us really know where this is going to end up. Uh, one of the things we have to look at is um, how do we maintain a certain level of freedom so that business can thrive. Mm-hmm. Um. Part of the challenge, you make this observation as well, um, it's pretty much everything today is seen through a political lens, and that's a challenge. Um, we have multinational companies, um, you know, who have been very, very engaged in uh, in political speech by their contributions. We have some of them withdrawing those uh, those gifts, withdrawing that hand. Um, when, you know, when does it function best? When government is strong and business is strong? I mean, that would seem to me to be the formula that would be, that would be best. Uh, that's a really a great question, Carmen. Uh, if you go back 20 years, let's say 30 years in business, what was the ethos? The ethos was business exists to enrich the shareholders. And that was it. And about 10 or 15 years ago, we started to see this infiltration into the purpose of business to being, uh, uh, being socially conscious, to helping those who, who were less fortunate and that kind of thing. And businesses have started to embrace that and really have embraced that in a, in a significant way. But when you embrace that, then you must necessarily become politically active. You are becoming politically active no matter how you look at it. So – uh, the yes, we mostly view um, our our lives now through political lenses, and I think that businesses are going to be all in now on that. They are going mm. to take sides in politics because they are going to see a connection between their products and services and the kind of life that they are creating for their customers. Yea, verily, the community. And they are going to be all in on this political process, too. You're going to find that the corporations are, are, are going to be in on this. And couple that with the Supreme Court um, decision that allowed co- corporations to give to political uh, parties and political campaigns. And you're going to find that uh, corporations are going to be choosing sides. And I think – an outgrowth of that will be that their customer base becomes aligned with a political party. Republicans will go to one company and uh, Democrats will go to another. I think you'll see com- competitors to Facebook and Twitter pop up, which conservatives will drive to, and Twitter and Facebook will become um, mostly uh, customers with uh, liberal political views. I, I think this is predictable. Because that's uh, how – 
how capitalism works, right? I mean, like, I see an opportunity. I see a, a population of people underserved um, who want a product or a service. And so, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, I create a product or service to meet that need. And those people then uh, reward me for that. Like, that's sort of the most basic form of it. I, yes, take a but, break, my, but, but, can, but my... But my customer base will also my customer base will also expect me to have a political opinion now. Mm-hmm. Oh no, just, I get that. Mm-hmm. And and that's different. That's different than even ten years ago. Totally different. All right, uh, Bill English and I are going to be back in a moment. Um, I, we're going to talk about a story out of India that um, really kind of captured not only my attention but it's kind of captured my heart. Um, I'd never heard of a rice ATM before, but I know what it is now, and I'm kind of excited to share it with you. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So back in uh, April, Bloomberg was reporting that rice ATMs were being installed to dispense free food to out-of-work Vietnamese. And uh, and then I saw this headline just this week um, about the installation of a rice ATM uh, to feed people in need in India. And I thought, you know what, we got to talk about this. And who better to do it than Bill English? This is this is just a great good news story. It is. It, it makes you feel good because it is good. Right. Amen. Tell us what's going on. Who is so, Ramu Dosapati? Dosapati. I wondered where you would put the accent, which syllable you put the accent on, because um, I, I had it differently, but I like Dosapati better. He's an HR executive in India. He's in the Hyderabad region of India, which is in the south central part of India. And he, uh, just through the normal discourse of life, uh, bumped into uh, a group of migrant workers, actually a whole camp of migrant workers who were stranded without uh, food or home because of A, COVID, and B, recent flooding that had happened in their area. And he felt compelled to do something about it. He saw another gal in the grocery store buying $2,500 worth of chickens to take back to the camp. And so he went back and looked at the camp and learned about it and started taking down names and realized that the need was very great. So you know what he did? He took his entire life savings, which amounted to 75000 U.S. dollars, and he built, with the help of some vendors, uh, local vendors, a rice ATM where rice and other necessities are dispensed 24 by 7 for this and other migrant workers who are in desperate need. He took all that he had, and he's giving it away. And I think there's a lesson in there for us. Yeah, it's just incredible. Um the, they have, um, it's a totally automated thing. It's really just quite extraordinary. It's a cool, um, it, it, it really, it's, it, it's extraordinary. Um, we think about staple food items and, um, we talk about daily bread and we as Christians, you know, pray in the Lord's prayer, give us this day, our daily bread. There are a lot of people around the world who do not have, um, access to daily bread and when we talk about most of the world, daily bread is rice. And so this is just really um, extraordinary story. Others have, um, you know, others have now joined in. Um, it's just, it, it's something that God is magnifying. And I just wanted to celebrate it. 
and and it's worth celebrating. And our, the equivalent for us here in America is to be giving to our food shelves. Remember, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, you and I talked about how uh, 18% of families with children in America right now are experiencing hunger. And they're going to the food shelves, and the food shelves are bare. Uh, they are they are really experiencing a lot of demand. So we're not going to build a rice ATM here in, in America, but we do have food shelves, and we can contribute mm-hmm. to those to help those people who are experiencing hunger. So um, I looked back after reading this this story uh, about what's going on in India, and I I looked back to refresh my uh, my memory on the rice ATM in in Vietnam that I had read about earlier in the year. And I remember that one being like fully automated. Like it's, it runs, it's out of a tractor trailer and they've got this machine and it's automated and it dispenses, you know, a certain amount of rice into a plastic bag every time somebody pushes the button on the machine. And I just thought to myself, people are ingenious. Like, you know, it's just, people are really, um, and it, and actually then the trucks just come and reload the grain elevator in the back. So it's not even like it's, it's not even going through that whole process of having to be bagged and then rebagged and distributed by hand. And, um, you know, in the midst of COVID, the more automated things can be, you know, it's it, it just I, the human ingenuity and generosity brought to bear on real need. I just found so um, encouraging and inspiring. We are resilient. God has Amen. given us um, a a a spirit of resilience and innovation. And I think when people innovate, especially uh, to help others, whether it's through for-profit or in this case, uh, nonprofit giving types of activities, we are really uh, uh, reflecting the creative and the loving nature of God. So I, um, uh, I'll just share this about something going on in my own community. We have a very small local grocery store. Um, it's like 20 minutes from here to, you know, what people would consider like a real grocery store. But in my very small rural community, we have a very small little local, locally owned and operated grocery store. And they were experiencing a uh, a lot of theft, um, and incre- increasing levels of theft. And so um, they decided, you know what, people are in need um, instead of uh, sort of forcing people to the point of having to steal let's just put a community shelf out in front of the store and so when you go buy your groceries you buy a little more than you need if you're able to do so and then when you walk outside before you put your groceries in your car you load up the portions of the community shelf that need to be restocked so that people in the community who have need can come and with dignity go to the community shelf and fill up their grocery bag and go back home and so I just want to encourage people to think creatively. Um, maybe you don't live in a large enough metropolitan area where, you know, there's a, like a, a legit community food bank with tractor trailers and refrigeration and all of that. Um, but there are ways for you to um, meet the needs in your own community um, that dignify, uh, that, that are dignifying for people, that do meet real needs with real resources that folks would have access today to their daily bread, um, which is a real answer to genuine prayer. Um, Bill, hey, as always, thank you so much. I love talking with you. I love talking with you too, Carmen. You have a good day, okay? Thanks, you too. You guys need to check out the uh, refreshedbibleandbusiness.com. Lots of great resources there um, from Bill English and his uh, his cohorts. So, Bill English, uh, as always, uh, such a pleasure. we got to take a break for Breakpoint. 
All right, so when we talk about um, reaching the next generation for Jesus Christ, when we talk about the realities um, in our culture today and how it is that Generation Z is not only absent from the church, but frankly, pretty um, pretty disconnected, and the responsibility that we bear as adults in that conversation. Josh Packard serves with Springtide Research Institute. They have done some really extensive research into Gen Z, particularly in the midst of COVID-19, and he's got some um, some thoughts and ideas to share with us next on on how we can reach Gen Z and some of the places where uh, the church is missing opportunities that are just wide open right now. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Lucado. The Bible that I carried as a child contained a picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He seemed peaceful. Yet one reading of the Gospels disrupts that image. Mark says, Jesus fell to the ground. According to Luke, Jesus was full of pain. What do we do with this image of Jesus? Simple. We read it when we feel the same. We read it when we feel afraid. For isn't it likely that fear was one of the emotions Jesus felt? He saw something in the future so fierce, so foreboding, that he begged for a change of plans. Father, if you're willing, take away this cup of suffering. How remarkable that Jesus felt such fear, but how kind that he told us about it. We see no mask of strength, but we do hear a request for strength. And the fact that he prayed invites us to do the same. This is Max. Locato. Joining me now, Dr. Josh Packard. He's executive director of Springtide Research Institute. Uh, Josh is a researcher, uh, studies uh, sociology of religion and new forms of religious expression. Uh, he is a writer and a speaker. He has a Ph.D. in sociology from Vanderbilt. Uh, he, he's a smart guy, and he is applying that uh, intelligence to helping us understand what's happening, particularly in this conversation, in the next generation, Gen Z. So, Josh, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hi, Carmen. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, talk with us about um, this massive research project that you guys have just undertaken at Springtide. Um, looking into really the experiences and and religious, I, I guess religious interest and experiences of Gen Z. First, reminding us first, who is Gen Z? Because I think sometimes we lose track of these numbers. Yeah, they can get confusing. I mean, everybody's got their own uh, their own terminology for generations. Well, first of all, I'll just say that this is. Um, this is it's really the first iteration of of a study that we're going to be doing every year 10,000 surveys 150 interviews with 13 to 25 year olds that's that's what springtide does um it all culminates into the state of religion and young people report that'll come out every fall and we put out other you know um uh, reports in between there that sort of take a deeper dive or a, a more of a focus on a particular issue but the state of religion in young people is all about sort of where young people's religious and faith lives spiritual lives are in a given year. And and our commitment at Springtide is really to go where they're asking those questions and to listen to them and, and find out what those conversations look like and who's who's having them with them. So rather than coming at this from a particular congregation or denomination or even faith lens, we just decided to go where young people are having, having those conversations and report them back. So Gen Z, uh, to get to your question, um, 
refers most commonly to the generation that was born about from the mid 1990s um, to about 2010. So, you know, we're really at the, the sort of youngest of what are the named generations at this point. And uh, what's important about them for people in the church to understand is that, you know, the church has been having this conversation about people and especially young people leaving the church for a while now. But Gen Z isn't leaving the church. They weren't raised in it to begin with. Um, and that's a that's a dramatic and stark difference and calls for a different sort of understanding of how to approach them. Uh, at Springtide, we believe that a flourishing faith life is a part of a young person's flourishing life all, you know, um, uh, in total. There are some um, there's some numbers that stand out um, in this. Uh, and I would say one of the things that just popped out at me was the. I mean, when you when you tell me that only one percent of young people across the country were reached out to during this pandemic by a faith leader, um, my heart breaks because we know they're isolated. We know they're fearful. Um, we know they're hungry for relationship. And and only one percent of them say, you know, somebody reached out to me that 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 hurts my heart. Yeah, it's mine, too. And it's a. um yeah, you know, we try to be, you, know, you try to be an objective researcher and just sort of re, you report, you know, what is out there and what can be done about it. But there are some moments that cause you to step back from the computer screen in, in this case. And just, you know, as a, as a team, we went back to that data a few times to make sure it was correct. Look, before the pandemic, um, we released a study called Belonging that it, it, it uh, confirms data from Cigna and others that for the first time ever, Young people are the loneliest generation in this country. They're the most isolated. They're the ones that need the most connection and relationships. And then the pandemic has only accelerated that. That number that you referred to, Carmen, came right in the first couple of weeks of lockdown. So right as people were sort of scrambling the most, we're going to do a follow-up study on that. And the uh, the data will the, the survey for that will go out later this month. Um, so we'll be able to report about whether or not that trend is held. I hope that it hasn't, but I don't uh, I don't suspect that it's going to change much. Let's talk about um, uh, this this age group of people. And again, we're talking about 13 to 25 year olds, Gen Z, um, because they're not they're not unreligious. They're not unspiritual. I'm I'm using too many double negatives. They are religious. (laughs) They are spiritual. Your data affirms that they are religious and they are spiritual. It's just that religious institutions are at this point missing engagement with them. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the. One of the things we lay out in the key findings section of this of this report is that it's these categories where, you know, it used to be that if somebody told you they were affiliated, then you could assume a whole lot of things probably pretty accurately about their lives. And if they said they were unaffiliated with a religious expression, you could probably assume accurately a bunch of things about their lives. And for Gen Z, um, that's just not true. The, the 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 picture is much more complicated. And as you point out, you know, so we've got we've got a lot of young people who are just really distrustful of religious institutions and all institutions, re- really not not just religious ones. And that seeps into the ways that they talk about their identity practices um, and and beliefs. I, I don't want to I don't want to like bombard your audience with statistics. And you can get this report for free on Apple Books or at our website. Um, but just to give you one, fifty two percent of young people who said they were affiliated, also said that they had little to no trust in organized religion. So that's over half of people saying, yes, I'm Christian, Buddhist, you know, Jewish, whatever, then also telling us that they have little to no trust in organized religion. So there's a really complicated story going on here. Yeah, I think that the trust conversation, um, I mean, again, that was one of the other things that really stood out to me. Um, And you and I would both acknowledge and recognize, like, 
trust is a deeply relational uh, word and reality and and sense. Um, and so much of what you talk about in here um, is the need for mentors, for genuine relationships to be built from one generation to another, real relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, life on life discipleship would be the way that some people would talk about it. But I think what we're initially talking about is just a willingness of older Christians to develop a relationship of any kind with a younger person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of, of any kind, really. Um, the Part of this, you know, the diagnosis here matters because it changes the way we think about what we're going to do in response to it, right? So if you think that the, the young people are leaving the church because either they are broken or the church is broken, which I think is predominantly the way most people talk about this, then it leads you down all kinds of wrong paths. In reality, what has happened is that our society across the board for the last 40 years or so has been moving away from institutions and institutional trust. This is true as true for adults as it is for young people. What that means is that the church is caught up in this bigger wave and it needs to respond. It's not a thing they can fix, but they have to respond to it. And the way to respond to it is, as you pointed out, Carmen, it's through relationships. That's why we talk so much uh, in this report about building relational authority, because we recognize that it's it's probably too abstract to just say, go hang out with kids. You know, that's not enough. You need to do it in some very particular ways. And thankfully, you know, by doing 10,000 surveys, 150 interviews, the young people were able to tell us exactly what they need from a trusted adult. All right, we're gonna um, we're gonna talk about that. What do they need from a trusted adult? I'm gonna continue my conversation in just a moment with Josh Packard. You can find what we're talking about at springtideresearch.org. We'll be right back. All right, continuing my conversation now with Josh Packard, Executive Director of Spring Tide Research Institute. You can find the report that we're discussing today at springtideresearch.org. Um, let's pivot to the what What does your research indicate that, that Generation Z would respond to if we were, like, willing to do it? <laughs> Well, this is the this is the important question. Uh, you know, this is one of the things I've, I say as the executive director to our team a lot is that if anybody ever says our research is interesting, full stop, that we should take it as an insult. You know, we, we want to be useful, not just interesting. And to do that, we have to provide frameworks that come right out of the data that are grounded and rooted in the social sciences. And thankfully, the young people were able to express this to us after you know working with them and, and helping them sort of drill down into what they meant by the kinds of trusted adults they wanted. And one thing they were very clear about is that they don't want friends. They don't want adults who are friends. They have friends. They want adults who are guides, teachers, mentors, coaches, et cetera. And then there's, they, they broke this down into five characteristics for us that were tested and borne out in the data. Just quickly, they're listening, transparency, integrity, care, and then finally, and critically, expertise. So expertise alone is not enough anymore. Those days are gone, I think, of, of you just being able to walk into a room with your fancy degrees. Like, you know, I, I wish they were still here. I have a PhD. I wish my students listened to me just because of that. But they don't. <laughs> like, they, you know, they, expertise is just not enough. Um, but if you only express the care and the relational side and you don't have any expertise, that's not enough either. So we have to be putting these five things together and some, you know, at least making efforts on these five fronts. And the, the really important thing about this is that then this becomes a system that can scale. Because if you're trying to lead a bunch of young people through relationships, you have to, you know, you're going to have to engage other adults, like you mentioned, you know, to do that work with you. And they need a system they can follow. 
All right, listening, transparency. I might have missed the third one, and I got care and expertise. And integrity. Oh, inte- well, yeah, that seems important. <clears throat> <laughs> All right, listening, transparency, integrity, care, and expertise. That's right. Um, and I, I think that when, you know, when I think about the, the young people in this age group who I know, um, you know, I, I would say that they um, – they are interested in learning from us, but they're only interested in learning from us when they know that we can be trusted in other areas of life. That that seems to be, to me, the that's the, they might call it an authenticity piece. Like you actually mm-hmm. have to, you got to be who you're talking about being. And it takes us back to that trust issue that we were talking about in the earlier segment that, you know, if, in a world where people are skeptical of institutions and you lead with your institutional affiliations, either your degrees or your title or position or your organization, then what happens with people who don't trust institutions, especially young people, is that they think you represent the institution. They think you have the institution's best interests in mind until you demonstrate otherwise. So you have to demonstrate that you have the young person's best interest in mind before they're actually going to listen you know, to all of the expertise that came along with getting that title or that position. Yeah, this... Um... I mean, even if I just look at your list, like I think about listening, then, you know, just to give a hook to listeners uh, here right now, you have two ears and one mouth. So listen (laughs) at least twice as much as you talk. Transparency is about showing before you tell. So there's show and tell, but you've got to show before you tell. That's a huge part of it. And then integrity, I think that when we talk about that here um, with one another, Oftentimes, Josh, what we're talking about is a fully integrated life. Uh, Christ mm-hmm. is not something that's just influencing me for an hour on Sunday mornings. Um, he is influencing uh, absolutely every fiber of my being and every moment um, of my life. And that in- integrity part for young people is really, really critical because they have seen um, a lot of evidence that there are people who talk about Jesus but don't live um you know, in a, in a Jesus-like way. And so that's huge. And then care, we talk frequently about, you know, the prayer, care, share lifestyle. Um, you know, I need to be praying for my neighbors, um, including the young ones. I need to be showing, I need to be caring for them in very tangible ways. And then uh, that provides a platform from which I might be able to share something um, with them. And I think that leads us to the expertise conversation. That's really mm-hmm. You know, whether or not it's sharing my faith or sharing, you know, you know, how to cook salmon, um, it, the expertise part, they're only interested in learning from me when they trust me in all these other ways. And what's so interesting about this for me as a sociologist, you know, this is one of the oldest lessons in, in the field here is that belonging precedes believing. And, and we mm. get it, we get in trouble every single time we get it backwards. When we think we have to get people to sign on to a particular, you know, set of beliefs in order to be a part of our group, we might get some short term wins, but it doesn't really create the sort of durable, long lasting commitments that we're really hoping to have with people. And this is true, not just for religious groups. It's true for political parties. It's true for communities, et cetera. Belonging has to come first if what you really want is durable, long-lasting belief. Yeah, I was trying to, I was trying to recall. Um, oh, I I found it here. When you talk about nearly half of young people um, told you that they've started some religious or spiritual spiritual practice during the pandemic, it occurred to me that um, religious and spiritual practices are really wide and really diverse. And so, yeah. um, if you know, let's say uh, a young person got involved with a group of girls who. 
um, you know, the, the, the belonging came first. The, the, the need was to be in a group. Well, the group mm-hmm. happens to be practicing Wicca. And so, um, you know, now she has some spiritual practices um, because she's gotten involved with a group, and that is what they are doing. And so um, I, I do think that we, we really miss a great opportunity when we fail to invite people into this rich fellowship that we experience as believers in Christ. I mean, it, it is precious, and those of us who have fellowship thoroughly enjoy it. I think we forget that that's what other people need as well. It is, desperately. You know, more than a quarter of young people told us they have one or fewer adult in their life they could turn to if they need to talk, and that includes mm-hmm. their parents. And if your readers have, I mean, if your readers, if your listeners have sort of tuned out for a second, again, one in four young people telling us they have one adult in their life or fewer, including their parents, that they could turn to. And that's a that's startling. And the best research sort of confirms that what, what we really want young people to be have, aiming for and having in their lives is something around five. Now, you don't have to be the solution to all five of those, but we need to be part of that solution. And then all kinds of risk factors decline, uh, you know, unwanted pregnancies, drug use, suicide, et cetera. Yeah. When you think about five people, I guess, you know, growing up, I had Miss Wickman next door. I had Coach Fife. Um, I had Miss mm-hmm. Mabry, who was a teacher. Like, this is the way you're talking about accumulating the five. Um, uh, and, you know, and then I had a young life leader, um, and then I had my parents, right? So the five that we're talking about here is uh, is a constellation of adults um, who all care about and are concerned about, know the name of and the the life situation of a particular young person. Um, Josh, this is um, sobering, sobering, um, and and yet provides, you know, I think a, a nudge to those of us who are mature Christians that there are very likely uh, people in Gen Z within our reach, um, you know, ages 10 to 25, who are longing for the kind of relationship that we enjoy, not only in Christ, but with one another as fellow Christians. And so thank you for um, the research that provokes us to do something. Uh, it's not just information. It is um, it's it's positive agitation. It's designed to move us from where we are um, to a different place in terms of relationships with the next generation. So thanks so much um, for doing what you're doing. I hope you'll uh, visit with us again. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. That is Josh Packard, Springtide Research Institute. You can find what we were talking about today, the State of Religion and Young People 2020 Relational Authority. It is the current report posted at springtideresearch.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. (sighs) All right. um, Sometimes, you know, the moment to come back on air is a surprise to me. Um, So... You've got a day before you. It occurs to me that one week ago today was January the 6th. And things happened on January the 6th that still uh, trouble us, concern us, deserve our attention. And so the the looking back a week is important. And, um, and a week from today will be the inauguration of the next president of the United States on the 20th of January. And so this is an interesting day here on the 13th of January, 2021. And it just occurred to me that I just think every day we need to be reminded the mercies of God are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, This is 
2021, the year of the Lord. For everything else that it is, this is the year of the Lord. Um, And for some people, this will be the year of the Lord's favor, which means that some people will come to a saving knowledge of God's grace in Jesus Christ this year. So uh, while we are tending to what happened one week ago today, and while we are anticipating what will happen a week hence, in this day, in this day, let us live as those um, whose hearts are full of the knowledge of the love of God, which surpasses all understanding and for which the world desperately yearns. Share the love of God with someone else today and be assured of it in your own life. God loves you. God loves you. God is with you and God is for you. And God is sending you out as an ambassador of his love and grace into the world that he so loves. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.